You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. Man, seagulls, seagulls are stupid. <laughs> and they're also very, very selfish. I mean, I, w- I want to just kind of paint the picture. Like you saw it, and most of you have seen Finding Nemo before, right? So and if you haven't, totally go find it somewhere on YouTube if you want to. And it's a great movie, but this, this whole idea of there are two tiny little fish. There's Dory and then Nemo's dad, whatever his name is, right? And they're on this dock, and there's like 200 fish, right? And every one of the 200 fish, 200 seagulls, and every one of these 200 seagulls believes what? That they're going to get to eat those two fish. Like they really and genuinely believe that. Mine, 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 mine. And they believe that to the point that they, as a flock, begin to chase the pelican. And even after they get their beaks stuck in the sail, what do they say? Mine, mine, mine. They haven't given up. Seagulls are selfish. Uh, I was down at Curry Beach last summer. Um, some friends of mine were having a wedding down there. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a beautiful day for a wedding. It was perfect temperature. And, you know, kids were playing in the sand. The beach was crowded. You've got to understand this. The beach was packed. People laying out, people having picnics, people having all the, uh, the umbrellas and the tents. There's even that one dude from Michigan. You know that guy? For some reason, he wore a Speedo, right? Perfect setting for a wedding, though. And, so, and, and what else were there? Seagulls. There's always seagulls at the beach. So we're down there at the beach, and the wedding party that I was in, I guess... Um, they weren't, all, they weren't all beach people. That was obvious. And one of them, I'm pretty sure this was the first time he'd ever even seen the ocean. Okay? He was just, oh. And I'm definitely positive it's the first time he'd ever seen seagulls. Because he had no idea what he was about to get into. He learned that if you hold a tiny piece of bread up in the air. Yeah, you know. He didn't know. The seagulls were literally flocked to you. And so he's like, oh, this is awesome. So he's standing in the middle of this crowded beach. And he holds up this tiny piece of bread. And I guess the first seagull got on like seagull Facebook or something. Because within a second, about a billion seagulls showed up. And they, they're swarming this guy. He's got one tiny piece. And he's having the time of his life. Here, birdie, birdie. Here, birdie. Look. Look, honey. There you go. But he's the only one. Because everyone else on the beach is like, dude, party foul. Everyone knows you don't feed the seagulls on a crowded beach day or ever. Seagulls are perfectly capable of feeding themselves. They can eat fish. God gave them fish. God gave them the french fries that fall out of the fast food line at McDonald's. Like, that's what God gave them to live off of. Not the, but he's standing there, birdie, birdie, birdie. And seagulls are flocking from every direction. Luckily, it didn't last long. Because they only had one piece of bread. And the seagulls gave up on him. And it was before, before a proper mob could assemble and throw him into the ocean and make him learn. That's just not what you do. Seagulls, maybe I'm exaggerating the story a touch, right? But one thing I know for a fact, seagulls are selfish. They don't think anything but, mine, 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 mine. I love that scene. I love that idea. And believe it or not, that's the starting point for our learning from God today. Because I think there's a lot that we can learn from that mindset that God would have us carry into some other part of our life. Uh, We're in this teaching series now. I've mentioned it a few times already called Lose Myself. Lose Myself. And this is week four of a five-week series. And so we've got one more week of this. And the kind of tag for this series is finding Jesus by letting go of control. Lose myself. And throughout this series, we've been trying to show the different reasons why losing myself would be a good thing. Jesus said, and in week one we covered it, he said, if you would be willing to lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. 
You'll find your life. Like, I can give you life if you would simply let go of the life you've built for yourself. And so we've been talking that for several weeks now. And if you're like me, you look at that and you go, that, that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that if God is, is God, and if he can do the things that he claims he can do, then it would make sense to give him control of my life. But if you're like me, you also have a problem. I got a problem. And I'm not, I'm not too ashamed to say what my problem is. My problem is, a lot of times I think like a seagull. Mine, 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 mine. And you can tell me all the reasons why I should let go and let God, as the old phrase goes. But quite frankly, I don't like people telling me what to do or why I should do it. I like doing things my way. Anybody with me on that? And so, you know, through this series, I think it's been a good one. We want to be a church that, uh, you know, if you, if you don't really know where you stand with God. I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know if I really get all the claims of Jesus. I don't know if I really understand the purpose of church. Maybe you come from a, a background where you had a bad experience or you're just here with a friend just checking things out. I love this teaching series for the reason that I think we can all take a look at our own lives and realize that by ourselves, we really can't accomplish but so much. And that is it possible that if there is a God and if he does love us like he says he does, that he really could take our life to this amazing place that he's designed for us. You know, we see this concept and uh, this mind, mind, mind concept all over the place. You see with kids. I got two kids. And, you know, one kid has a toy. The other kid wants the toy. What happens? Snatch, snatch, pull, punch, kick, scrap, break, mom, mine, mine, mine. And then, it's, I, sorry, punk, it's my toy. I'm keeping it, right? It doesn't matter the consequence. It doesn't matter how much you punish them. But they, why? Because there's something in our nature that makes us want to look out for what's ours. Right? And it's not just kids. I've seen this in adults. You ever seen a grown woman on Black Friday? Oh, goodness. It's like flat screen TV. It's only $25 off. But ah, they're tackling each other in the hallway. It's crazy. But it's because we are looking out for what's mine, what I could have. It's, it's a pretty serious situation. I mean, we love uh, democracy. At least I do. I love the ability to vote for my representatives. And we love to have a say in government. And we love to know who uh, is going to represent us. But I tell you what, when we get to a point where the people that we didn't vote for, the people that we didn't like, the people that we didn't want to be in office, what do we do? We complain for four years. I didn't vote for them. Blah, 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 blah. Why? Mine? 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 And so this morning, as we're in week four of Lose Myself, I want to take a look at a section from the Bible that totally addresses that idea and could give us some teaching on how we might do better. And so if you've got a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in the New Testament. i got mine up here. A lot of times I just look at mine on my iPad or on my phone, and I want to encourage you to do that too. This is uh, 2015, so if you want to download a Bible app, feel free. That's totally not cheating. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking, starting at verse 1. You can put your thumb there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I want, to know, I want you to know we give them away for free. They're underneath your seats here, and we have them uh, back near the coffee area. A volunteer could hook you up. And if uh, you just don't want to look at a Bible right now, there's scripture on the screen behind me as well. But actually, since I'm holding this microphone, I am going to use my iPad because I only have two hands. But as we look through the book of Philippians, what I learn is that this is a rich text for daily life teaching. But before we get there, I want you to know that it comes from a rich culture and a rich community. And so if you're in Philippians, just hold on to that. I want to go on a little journey and tell you what this book is all about and, and, and where Philippi is. Uh, first of all, let's check out a map we got on the screen. Uh, if you know anything about the, the, the world, you might notice the boot of Italy over here uh, on my left. And then if you look over here, there's Turkey, there's Greece, the big kind of splat in the middle. 
And that big red arrow is pointing to an area in ancient times uh, was known as Philippi. And this is a very prominent area at that time. Uh, it was named after a guy named King Philip II of Macedon. You ever heard of King Philip II? He was a very ambitious young king. Uh, he had this idea that he was going to unite all the Greek peoples, all the Greek city-states. They are going to unite under one leadership, under one government, under one military, and then conquer the world, which is, you know, completely rational. I think I'm going to get with some buddies from high school. We're going to, you know, unite and then conquer the world. You know, we don't normally have these thoughts, but back in the day, people did. And this is King Philip II of Macedon. Now, Unfortunately, King Philip never accomplished the goal of conquering the world, but his son did, almost. Maybe you've heard of his son. His name is Alexander the Great. Yeah, Alexander the Great, hometown, Philippi. That's where he comes from. And so what Alexander the Great does, though he doesn't conquer the entire world, he conquers this whole Mediterranean region uh, down in northern Africa, all the way up in Palestine, all the way over to lower Europe. And he's got this whole area under wraps. And what he does is actually lay the foundation for what becomes the Roman Empire. So in the time of Jesus, when the Romans are ruling everything and calling all the shots, all of that culture is actually founded out of the dream of Philippi. It's kind of neat. I mean, you've got a central government, you've got everybody's, uh, you know, worshiping, if not bowing down to an emperor who lives far away. Everyone's speaking the same language, they've got the same currency. And this whole culture that we find Jesus in, in the first century, it began with the roots in this city of Philippi. Philippi was once a city of great natural resources. I mean, they had gold, they had lots of timber, which is very valuable for building and, and making ships and homes and all, all kinds of things. Uh, one of their greatest natural resources was uh, freshwater springs. And so if you've ever studied, you know, ancient Greek or Roman culture, that was a big thing. People would gather around these springs. It was a place of, you know, culture and a place of, of exercise and all kinds of things. This is the culture of Philippi. And what happens is, as Christianity becomes prominent, the way it spreads around the world is people learn about Jesus. They hear that Jesus has got this message that God loves us and I've come to connect you with God through my sacrifice. And these people get so excited about that message that they can't help but travel around the world and tell everybody they meet. And so you've got this guy named Paul. We talk about Paul a lot. Paul wrote a good chunk of the New Testament of the Bible. And um, many of his writings uh, were letters to Christians that he converted to Christianity, and he started churches in their city. And then after he left that city, he would then write letters to them to encourage them, to teach them, to give them all kinds of training, and things like that. And so Philippi hits our scene with the biblical story when Paul starts a church there. Okay, so Paul has traveled up all the way through Philippi. He's established the church there. He's moved away. And now he's written a letter to the people that are called Philippians. We get the book of Philippians. All right, you with me? That's where we are. That's why we have the book of Philippians. Um, what I want to do now is just take a look at the culture that uh, Paul is teaching to. Because I think it's very similar to the culture that we find ourselves in, in America, in Wilmington, in the world. See, these people didn't grow up like Paul did or like Jesus did, Jewish. Uh, they didn't grow up believing in the God of the Bible. They grew up um, what they would call pagan. They worshiped idols. They worshiped local deities. They, you know, they, they did all kinds of ceremonies and rituals and all kinds of things that actually were very against what God would have taught them to do. And this is the world they grew up in. So when Paul comes in with this message that God loves us, God wants to connect with us, God can save you, it is absolutely earth-shaking for them. Because they grew up the whole time saying, 
God is out to get me. God wants to kill me. If I don't appease God, he's going to dry up the sky and we'll have a famine. That's what they learn. And then to learn that there's a God who loves them is very appealing. And so this church at Philippi springs up. I wish I could tell you a lot more about the church at Philippi. It's a fascinating group. Um, but we're going to move on. And so when Paul comes with this message of Christianity, there are a few new nuggets of lifestyle change that have to be introduced. And I think it goes right along with our talk about the seagulls. Because naturally they're saying, mine, mine, mine. And he wants to address that. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Here we go. Philippians 2, 1 says this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Hang on to that. Let's just leave it on the screen for a minute. Uh, I don't know if you remember geometry class in high school. Uh, it's very uh, special to me in my heart. It was in geometry class, a little, little tidbit of trivia on Chris's life. Uh, I met my wife in high school geometry class. Pretty cool. And so needless to say, I don't remember about geometry very much. But there are a few things that I did take away. And one of them that I did take away uh, was my wife's phone number, uh, which is numbers. So that totally counts. And the other thing I talked, walked away with this concept of if then statements. Do you remember that from math? If then statements. It's basically this. If A, then B. It's more of a logic statement. What it says is, if this can be found to be true, then you could assume that this would happen. It's cause and effect. And so it works in math. It works in geometry. It it works in logic. It works in everyday life. I mean, you've you've experienced this. If I eat a bowl of chili then I'm probably going to have heartburn later, right? It's just cause and effect. If I'm being chased by a bear, then I'm probably going to run faster than you. You know, it's, it's just logic. Now, the cool thing about the if-then statements is you can find what's called the converse. If you take the if and you find the if not, the opposite of that, you might be able to find some other things. So, for example, if a bear is not chasing me, I'm probably not going to run because I only run if something's chasing me. And... If a bear is not chasing me, then I might not need to run faster than you. You see how that goes? It's a way to figure out uh, truths and facts and predict outcomes. And I love that Paul uses this if-then formula as he writes our statement here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I want to take a look back and and start with the if, okay? Let's look at verse 1 again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if. There's a lot of ifs. It's a conditional clause. It says, look, if these things are true, you can start to say in your brain, well, then something else is probably going to happen. And I appreciate what he says here because you can, first of all, say, well, if these things are true, then. But you can also find the converse. You can say, well, what if these things aren't true? You say, well, you know, I might feel like I'm united with Christ. I might have chosen not to be united with Christ. You might say, I haven't experienced his love. You, you might say, I haven't felt the spirit of God in my life. Or you might have, you know, I don't, I don't feel compassion from God. I love that he says it this if-then way because there's a real sense where God says, that's okay. Like, I want you to have these things. My goal is for you to have these things. As a church, our goal is to have these things. But Paul says, you know what? God has given us the ability to choose. And so if you've chosen not to do these things and have these things and feel these things, then, well, that's your prerogative. 
We want to be a church that is open to people no matter where they are in their life. I want the message of God to be accessible to anybody. If they're feeling like, I don't even know if there is a God. Maybe you're just here with a friend for the first time, and you're just checking in the church for the first time ever, or the first time since you were eight years old and your, your grandma made you come to church. I want you to know you might be in this category, and that's an all right place to start. I'm not feeling these things. But Paul gives this if-then statement. He says, if you feel like you're united with Christ, if you have comfort in his love, if you're sharing in the spirit, if there's tenderness and compassion. That's the if. Now let's look at the then. Verse 2, he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love and being one in spirit and one in mind. He says, if you're a Christian, then let's get on the same page here. Let's be of like mind. Let's be of one spirit. Let's work together here. Let's get on the same page as Christians, people who would say that Jesus is my Lord and I'm a Christian. We got to be on the same page. And one of the things I, I feel that is often a part of church is disagreement and division. I mean, you just look around this city and, and one of the reasons why there's over 250 churches, I, I haven't personally counted them. I've just seen other statistics and there's, oh, there's hundreds of churches. One reason is because we just can't agree on some basic things. And it's a little bit sad. And I would say that we're probably just as guilty. You know, there's just some things that we think things should be this way, and that's the way we want to do it. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Come together with your mindset on the same thing. It's easy to find out what we disagree on, right? Disagreement is like that. I'll give you an example. We talk a lot about football. I'm excited about Super Bowl, whatever. Uh, you know, Pro Bowl today. It's the only time I'm get seen in my, my players' plays today at the Pro Bowl. But, you know, it's, it's cool to, to, to talk about football. But in North Carolina, I'm, I'm born and bred here. I'm a North Carolina boy through and through. Here's one thing that I've learned that North Carolinians cannot agree on. And that is, which North Carolina university has the best basketball team? That's what everybody across the board. Now, I'm going to prove it to you right now. If you don't believe me, I'm going to prove it to you right now. Because I think there's people in this room right now who would say, how many of you would say this, that the best college basketball team in the world goes to UNC Chapel Hill? Anybody? No, for real? That is not how you cheer for your team. I know. Yay. Come on. Let's show some love for your team if you feel it. All right, fakers. Okay. I'm just curious if there are any Duke fans in the house. Anybody? There's somebody. All right. I'm just curious if there's any NC State fans. Okay, so you guys actually have team spirit, okay? Everybody else is just a little bit ashamed, and I can understand that. But here's the thing. It would be easy for me to divide this room on the things that we di we disagree on. And I, I know that in looking at this room, uh, some of you would say, well, those three teams aren't even the team. I mean, there's another team in South Carolina. There's a couple teams in Virginia. There's, some te there's a team in Maryland that I'm, you know what I'm saying? And so as we start dividing this room up, we could easily be like, okay, next, let's have a fist fight. And that's how it progresses. Now, it's easy to see the things that make us different. It's easy. But the fact is, that actually goes to one of these core thoughts that we have. It's the seagull mind. Mine? 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 It's about looking out for me. And, my, and look, it's fun and games when sports hit. I, I, love, I love team competition. I think that's great. But sometimes when we have a light mind about bad things, bad things can happen. See, people can unify their minds around injustice, around hate, around bigotry. It's been people who united around a bad idea that let things like the Holocaust happen, right? 
And so it's really easy to decide how we're different. It's also easy to say, I got a like mind with a couple of people or maybe a large group of people. But what Paul says is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to unite your minds around an idea that God has planted. And that's where he goes in Philippians chapter 2. Let's see what that idea is. And so our goal isn't just to be like-minded around anything. Not just, let's all agree on the same brand of bread to use. Let's all agree on who makes the best soda. Let's all agree on what best basketball team there is. He said there's one specific thing I want us to wrap our minds around, and let's look at it. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3 now. We're just moving down through that same passage. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Did you catch that? Humility. There's a mindset here, and the mindset is humility. In many ways, humility has become a virtue in our culture. And there's something about doing something that's humble that makes us feel like, yeah, that's probably about right. You know, it's a good thing to be humble. If someone's arrogant or conceited, we look at them and say, well, man, they're all about themselves. But that's actually a relatively new development in world history. In fact, when you look through a lot of uh, philosophies of the world and, and particularly through religious cultures, uh, you'll, you'll find that humility actually doesn't become very prominent until Christians become prominent. This idea of humility is kind of a foreign concept to our mind. Why? Mine, 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 right? And so when... When Paul walks into Philippi and he tells all these people who used to worship these idols and these these regional gods, and he says, I want you to be humble, they go, what? Humble? Because humble stood for poverty. Humble stood for meagerness. Humble stood for, you know, submission. Humble is not where you want to be. You want to strive to be higher than that. And I don't think you have to dig far into our culture to see that Though we are a do-good culture, I mean, we're always volunteering for stuff as a culture, and we've got a little ribbon on the back of our car that's every single color because we want to report everything. And, but in reality, if you start digging a little bit deeper than surface level, I think we all have a problem with a seagull mindset. I mean, we, we would look out for ourselves first. And maybe we think, well, no, 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 I don't. I love my family. Well, yeah, okay, let's extend that circle to our, our immediate family and our closest friends. Sure, many of you give the shirt off your back to your, your, your relative or your good friend. Why not? But when you extend past someone that I don't know their name, or we speak a different language, or your skin's a different color than mine, or you come from a different culture than me, we, we begin, and I know that we don't want to. I believe with all my heart that Americans in general don't want to, but, but we do. We begin to pull back. We feel a bit, a bit less comfortable, don't we? And it's just that mine, mine, mine mentality. It seems to be programmed into who we are. And Jesus says, I think we can do better. Let me show you what I mean to get this idea honed out today. And I think that um, we can walk away with a lose myself attitude. If we can really land on what Paul is trying to teach the Philippians here today. When I stop and think about the mindset of Christianity and what it means to live the life of a Christian, a couple of words pop into my head immediately. And, and I'll play a little... Uh, a little um, just word game with you today. You don't have to say anything out loud, but think about it in your head. You know, what are some of the top words that come to your mind when you want to describe ideal Christianity? Maybe love. Love would be a, good, a top one for me. Maybe grace. Grace would be a good one for me. Uh, maybe joy or peace. These are things that we would think, okay, these are ideal Christianity traits. We want this. And, and we, love, we love to talk about those things. And if you've been to church here very long, you know, okay, we talk about love a lot. 
Love is a big deal. Why? Love makes us feel good. We love to love each other. We love to go out and, and, and be love agents. That's a phrase that we use here as often as possible. We love to love because it helps us share something from our heart and it's, it's good. It makes us feel good. Grace. We love grace. You know why I love grace? Because I mess up. I sin. I do things that God says don't do. I'm not going to stand up here and say, I've got it all figured out. I'm perfect. No, daily, I'm struggling to make sure that I'm staying in line with what God wants for my life. And if it was just that story, it'd be like, ooh, sorry, Chris. Because God says, man, our sin separates us from each other, from God. We can't be with God when we've got sin in our life. But you know what grace does? Grace says, I'm, I'm going to give you forgiveness that you don't deserve, that you couldn't earn. And so we love to talk about grace. Yes. Let's be grace-shaped people. We love that. We love joy. We love peace. Why? It makes us feel good. You know, it may, it, it, ooh, get the, the warm fuzzies inside. Joy to the world. Woo! But then you talk about humility. And I'm like, ah, that's not quite as warm and cozy. Because when I understand what humility is, what I know is that means I got to take a step back. You know, I, I got to get down. Or I, I got to go to a region that I'm not as comfortable in. That's humility. And it's not as comfortable. You know, I want to go through that same little exercise again, and I want to talk about Jesus. I was talking about Christianity just now, love and grace and joy and peace and other things. Let's look at Jesus. If we were going to define Jesus or describe him in, in one word, what would it be? Maybe it would be love. It's a good word. Did Jesus love people? Absolutely. He showed it all the time. Maybe it would be grace. I mean, without Jesus, there is no grace. So absolutely. Maybe it would be joy. Maybe it would be peace. But I think what Paul points out to us here is, is mind-shattering to me. That the definition of Jesus' character might be humility. Humility. Let's look at verse 5. Philippians 2 verse 5. This is what he says. Your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What is that mindset? Remember, we're trying to unite around a common mindset. Verse 6, he's going to define it. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's just leave that up on the screen because I want to kind of go through it. Jesus, our attitude should be like Jesus. Well, well, that sounds great. We can love people. We can show grace to people. No, no. Let me define what Jesus did that nobody else could do. Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something that he should use to his own advantage. Could he have? Could Jesus have just been like, I ain't going down there. I'm not doing it. This is Jesus. He is God. And he looks down and he sees our condition in sin. And sometimes when I'm looking at my own children or I have people in my life and I see that they get themselves in a bad situation, you know, sometimes, and I believe sometimes it's healthy, but sometimes I look at them and go, hey, they, they dug a hole, let them climb out, you know? God could have been like, look, they dug that hole, see if they can get out. But he looked down and he said, you know what? They can't get out of that hole. And even though he was God, he said, I, I, I don't consider my godness something that needs to just be used for my advantage so what did he do he made himself nothing he became a human and not just a human but a servant 
See, Jesus could have come down and he could have set himself up just right, man. If I was Jesus, because I got my mind mind going on, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to come down to earth as a king with fluffy bedroom slippers and room service. Yes. And that's how he come down. This is how religious leaders throughout history have done this. They've set up on their pedestals. They've driven around in their nice cars. They've been in the nicest house. Um, you know, I, I have a, a thing. I don't talk about it a lot because it's not, not a big deal. But a lot of people will call me Pastor Chris. Or they'll talk about, well, you're the pastor. And they want me to have something special. And I, I told a guy this morning, um, we were making a decision that was going to happen. They said, well, you're the preacher. Make a decision. I said, well, that's just not how we do it here. <laughs> because I'm not special. I'm not up here. Half the time I'm down here. There's no reason why I should be better than anybody else. Call me Chris. That's my name. My mom calls me other things when she's angry, right? Just like you. And so call me Chris. And, and I think that, that that's an example I want to live by because that's what Jesus did. I'm God, but I don't consider quality God something I should use in my own advantage. Instead, I want to make myself nothing and take on a human form. He grew up as a poor carpenter. During his three and a half years of ministry where he was walking around and teaching, that's what we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels in the New Testament. During those three and a half years, uh, he, he is so poor. He talks to his followers and he said, did you know that I don't even have a place to lay my head? You know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. He willingly did that. He took a state of near homelessness so that he could relate with the broken, so that he could be on a level with people that were hurting didn't take long for Jesus to get a great reputation of being a wise and learned man who knew scripture and could teach like nobody's business. And he could have easily aligned himself with prosperous people in the nation and said, hey, man, I'm pretty smart. Why don't you let me come to your special social event? Why don't you let me get the seat of honor? Why don't you let me walk at the head of the parade? Who did Jesus hang out with? Prostitutes. People strung out on drugs. People who were, who were dishonest. People who were liars. People who had incurable diseases. This is who Jesus hung out with. By choice, he lowered himself. I can't help but think of the story of the lady who was caught in the act of adultery. She was cheating on her husband. It says she was caught. I don't know exactly to what degree. I've always imagined that it was almost literally in the act. And I just and in the story, she gets drug out to the street by, by the people who caught her. I just imagine her in the middle of the, the road there, nothing but a, a bed sheet. And by law. She was now guilty of adultery, and therefore the punishment was death by stoning. So the men of the village were gathered around her with big rocks in their hand. This is a real story. It's in the Bible. Jesus was there, and he saw it coming together. And they were ready to accuse this lady. And this is Jesus, God in the flesh. He walks over to this lady, and I just pictured in my head that he stoops down next to her. Says she wrote some, he wrote something in the sand. We don't know what it was. And he looks up to the crowd that had gathered to execute this girl. And he says, hey, I tell you what, whichever one of you doesn't have any sin in their life, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Be my guest. There's silence. And then the rocks begin to drop. Plop, 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 until they're all gone. Why? Because they all realized that he was right. She had made a mistake, and maybe it was a really big one. In fact, in my experience with sin... By the time you get caught, you're probably already in pretty deep. I want to make this clear. Jesus hates sin. He hates it because of what it does to our soul. He hates it because of what it does to our relationship with him. We can't continue in a healthy relationship with God if we're living in sin. He hates that. But you know what he doesn't hate? You, me, and that girl who, though she got busted, 
He wanted to show her that there is love for you. I love what he says to her. He said, where are your accusers now? Why don't you get up, get some clothes on, go, this is the phrase, and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Humility. What a picture of humility. And through his humility, we see Jesus' love. How did Jesus love us? He didn't consider equality with God something that he should use to his own advantage. But he came down to be with us. It was awesome this past Thursday to get to be with you guys. I talked about it a little earlier, but, you know, a lot of Venture Church friends and family of mine come out, and we were down at Vigilant Hope's uh, Walking Together meal. And, and there were a large group of people in poverty, many of them homeless, and they were just there for a warm meal. And I loved what I saw because among our group of volunteers were businessmen. There were college students. There were parents. And, and here's what I'm pretty sure is true about all of you guys who showed up is that all of you, could have been doing something else. And all of you probably make more money and live in better houses and have homes that you're proud of compared to the group of people that you went to serve. But what I love to see, though, was that that didn't matter. Many of you spread out among the group and just sat at the tables and shared a meal. And you talked and you told stories and you tried to return humanity back into their lives. And you made them feel valuable. Now, I don't want to start handing out blue ribbons for, um, you know, Humble Heroes of the Month Club. And then we're all, yay, we did it. And we, we all did it, really, because the church said, let's sign up. And we all went together because maybe we were scared to go by ourselves. But the truth is, you did it. You know what? It was good, wasn't it? The people that I was face-to-face with, and I wish I had time to tell a lot of the stories that I heard, but there are people that I know I have passed on the street or driven by in my car, either A, not even noticing them there, or B, as I drove by thinking, come on, get it together. Not even knowing what they're going through. And you've probably done the same. But man, got it. getting to sit there, getting to come down, and getting to say, you know, it's not about me right now. It's about you. Let me love you. Let me help you. Let me not try to judge you because of some thing that I feel like you may or may not have done right. What if we did more like that in everyday life? Then instead of seeing the things that make us different, we could get the mindset of Christ and humble ourselves. God didn't come down in the flesh as Jesus to, to just push us off our pedestals. That's not what he came to do. He probably felt like that. Instead, he takes us by the hand and he shows us the staircase down by going first. He said, hey, this is it down here, down here. There you go. There you go. Let's serve. Let's love. Let's be people that put others first. I'm going to lose myself. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would lose themselves, lose their life for my sake, they'll find it. They'll find it. I'm going to close the day with Philippians 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. The humble mind of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for 
paving the path for us, for being a pioneer in so many ways, a pioneer in love, a pioneer in truth, a pioneer in humility. And God, I'm not good at it a lot of times. Um, I've gotten better the more I've trusted you. But I pray, Lord, that you help me to lose myself and give you control and find purpose and find humility and find joy in you. We pray all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.